The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information, www.mecu.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites on The Mark Steiner Show, broadcast out of WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, right here in Baltimore, and on WSCL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Sound Bites is our weekly look at our food, our world, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. And last week, I moderated a panel with three guests of honor at the 15th Eastern Shore Planning Conference, the Delmarva Ag Secretaries. Maryland Secretary of Agriculture, Buddy Hans, Delaware Secretary of Agriculture, Ed Key, and Virginia Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry, Todd Haymore. We talked about agricultural and environmental issues important to the Delmarva region. One of the things I think that, that we often neglect to do in this country is to look at trends that go beyond tomorrow morning. So I'm very curious how much of your time and how, many, how much of the resources that are in your offices look at the economic trends that are taking place across the globe and here, factoring in what climate change is going to do and how that's going to affect the water, the land, the place that we live, and how that's going to affect what's going to happen to agriculture in the future, how much that's taking, being taken to a consideration. Um, most people think it doesn't, or that you all don't. Do you? How do you do it? Uh, well, it, the way it happens in Secretary Delaware, Key. the one thing I would say, first of all, it truly is a multi-agency approach. We're talking to our environmental agency. We're talking to the feds. We're talking to everybody. We worry about, on the Delaware Bay, saltwater encroachment. And maybe an answer to that are, are salt-tolerant crops. That's very specific. When I interviewed with the governor for this job, he said, what's the most important thing about being a secretary of agriculture? I said, it's making sure as best as you can that farmers can be profitable. And profitable leads to the future. And just of all the different enterprises that were talked about today and concepts, futuristic concepts, new concepts, that is about the future. And I think the three of us probably have a tremendous faith because we've worked with farmers, been farmers all our lives in the capacity of farmers to be flexible and create new opportunities as long as they have a stage from which they can compete fairly. So that's my take. I mean, but, let me just, as you two both pick up, I mean, one of the things farmers always say, whether we talk to farmers who primarily farm around CAFOs or farmers who are smaller farmers farming organic or small fields, is regulations. Regulations drive farmers crazy because they're by nature either conservative or libertarian, for the most part. <laughs> so, so, at least from the people I've interviewed, that's where they seem to come down. So how does that looking at the future affect that? The regulations, what's going to be grown here, how it's going to be grown, uh, what other land use um, laws are going to have and, and regulations when it comes to what the future is going to bring. Because just like the canneries went, somebody thought about how to keep those things alive when we started moving from vegetables to chicken and more on the, on the, in Delmarva. So what about the future? Where does that take us? Well, I think the farmers Buddy, today have to become more cognizant of the citizens around them. I think that what we have learned here in our region recently with the TMDL and working towards our goals is uh, our farmers have a better understanding that the way they operate their farms are now being viewed from a greater audience. You know, I am a farmer. I'm just on sabbatical for eight years, maybe. Um, but, you know, I, I think that I'm doing the best job I can do. But what I've learned in this job is other people view what I do completely differently than I do. Uh, and that agriculture needs to be aware of those situations. You know, as Ed said, you know, we're working together with all the agencies when it comes to considering climate change, sea level rise, you know, weather conditions, uh, all those things that are going to affect agriculture in the future. So our, I think our role at the department is to provide that information to the industry and to help our farmers as they transition into whatever changes might occur in the future, whether it's weather-related or business-related, but helping those farmers adjust to those new conditions. You know, as Ed pointed out, 
There used to be a major canning industry on the shore. Uh, you know, there could be a time on the shore when there's no poultry industry. There, there could be. You know, if you look back uh, over the eastern shore, there have been many changes. So we always have to be cognizant that there's going to be change and do our best to prepare for that change. So, so Todd Hamill, let me throw it out this way, and you all can comment on this. I mean, so I'm curious where we think this is going to be 15 years out from now. There are a lot of young farmers who are represented here in, in various ways or another, people in front of farm in different ways. We call them niche farming, but I'll come to that a little bit later. Is it niche or is it a new industry that we're building that's not so niche, right. but maybe has a much more of a deeper effect than that? And I'm, I'm thinking this in terms of our present, present thing and how this fits in the future. The vast majority of large farms here work in poultry. That's a big mainstay of people's livelihood, right? Um, and, um, and usually farming for companies that give them the chickens, whether it's Tyson, Purdue, or Mount Air, or whoever that company might be. So, and right now we're looking in a place like Somerset County that is worried that that's going to expand. Some people worry that's going to expand into 70 new farms people are saying are getting licenses to grow. And then there, there are people in both the Virginia part of Delmarva and parts of Delaware that are also concerned that from, around, from Somerset County it expands out and this whole new world is about to be built out. So A, is that the future? Is that how farming is developed? Is that where it's going to go? Um, and, and I guess concomitant of that would be just thinking how much more can the land take in that, in that arena as farming. So I'm thinking about where the trends are going, where farming is going, how do we respond to that? You know, from the standpoint of taking the first part first about poultry and I guess thinking about the Delmarva, you know, there's very, I think probably in the historical standpoint of the Delmarva as far as the northern tip of the eastern shore in Virginia, it's probably the fewest poultry operations there. So I think we're already seeing how the eastern shore is changing to more grain, soybean, aquaculture, wine, vineyards. I mean, it's really, you're seeing a, agritourism is thriving on the eastern shore. Um, so definitely, I think the trends are, are, are you're, you're seeing the change, the trend on, on our part of the Delmarva. And let me sort of, uh, let me jump back across the, the Chesapeake Bay from the standpoint from looking toward the future. What we did in Virginia uh, about five years ago, when I moved from being the commissioner of the Department of Agriculture to being secretary, uh, was put a business plan in place that was strategic and was looking forward. For years and years and years in Virginia, you had the largest industry in the state, agriculture, on the outside looking in to economic development and strategic planning. Bob McDonald, the governor, changed that, and we brought ag into the strategic plan of, for thinking about the future. And our focus was on domestic development, capitalizing on those opportunities, yes, that were growing right in front of us, like farmers markets, other things that would give farmers instantaneous new opportunities to sell their product, but also looking to grow the world. And Virginia went from having one trade office in Hong Kong to now having 10 offices around the world in key locations. So um, I think from our standpoint to how this question originally started, you have from, in, from, it's hard in government sometimes to be proactive because you're having to react to so many things that just happen. And that's not unique to government. It happens, I mean, a private sector guy a few years ago, it happens to us there too. But you really, for agriculture and thinking about those trends and how we're going to feed 11 billion plus people probably by the year 2050, what can Virginia do, what can Maryland do, what can Delaware do to help be on the front side of that curve versus playing catch up? And that's where we try to think about things from the governmental standpoint of looking forward and being proactive. Good. One thing about regulations, they need to be fair and they need to be well thought out. But Tom Friedman, who writes for the New York Times and writes books, he has a, uh, I read him, and he wrote something that really resonated, that a judicious amount of regulation to address a problem often, often stirs innovation. So what's our problem here? We have a lot of poultry manure. Now, Delaware, when Fisteria broke out in 97 or 98, we have a nutrient management commission, and we have rules and regulations. And we, frankly, we um, relocate 25 to 30 percent of our manure to other places that can absorb it or even to other industries. But in this room today, 
I know there are several people that are very interested in the next technology of how to do something different with poultry manure, alternative uses. So that's where it goes back to Friedman's statement that you know, fair and judicious regulations can also lead to innovation, point. which gets to the future or you know, solving the problem so we can move forward in the future. As far as poultry manure, you know, if I was the, uh, the czar of all agriculture on Delmarva, and I want to make it clear I'm not, that, uh, you, you know, what? You could be. <laughs> Maybe after the cocktail hour. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, you know, maybe 5% of the manure goes to compost, and 5% goes to a organic fertilizer manufacturer. 10% goes to energy. 10% goes to something else. I think that is where these solutions are going to lie um, with innovation, and innovation by first identifying the problem, putting the appropriate regulations, um, and then the regulations and the situation lead to innovation. So, so, so being from Maryland and uh, being in this state that we are, you know, as long as regulations are based on science, you know, agriculture can embrace those regulations. You know, they just want good, sound science. I think that the issue that we have in Maryland when it comes to regulations is, you know, we're, we're a small state, uh, maybe not as small as Delaware, but we are a small state, and the demographics are such that there is a significant citizenry, citizenry that wants to see actions and results right now. And when you're dealing with an industry that has non-point -sour, non sources of nutrients, those actions that you take, those results can take a long time, and there's not patience for that. And so our community gets frustrated when they take all these steps and do all these things and make improvements. And because the results aren't immediate, there's more demands. You know, you know, you're not getting there fast enough. They want you moving faster. And I think the community gets frustrated uh, when they do such good things and then they don't seem to get any you know, credit for the things that they've done. And you know, as Ed said, you know, regulations should be developed you know, using good sound science, everybody working together and come to some consensus on how we're going to move forward and the results we expect in a reasonable amount of time. So I'm curious when you talking about feeding these 11 million people on the planet, but also let's talk about feeding people that live right around here. Um, and we know that even where we live here, whether in Delmar or other places, there are food deserts in the middle of the country, in small towns. People have no access to food right here where we live and across all three of our states. So... Part of, the que part of the question is, when, I look at the, when we're looking at the future and where the future of farming is going to be and where it's going, I forget who, but, but you might have said niche when you're talking about the niche farming. But, so there are many people who want to see agriculture grow in a way that we are growing food, with that word sustainable can mean many things, growing food sustainably um, that can feed an area within, some people argue, 200, 400, whatever that mile radius is, and feed the people. And then the argument that Delaware, Maryland, Virginia could be that breadbasket for the entire area because of the land we have. So the question is, is that the direction we're going in, in terms of where the money gets invested from the state, or is it, does it remain in the world of CAFOs? And I'm, this is not an anti-CAFO question. This is a question about where the future is going to be. Is, it, is, is the future going to be in... 200 more poultry farms and keeping the fight, fighting the question of phosphorus and nutrients in the, in, the, in the bay, or is there a different future? And what role do you play if there is? And maybe you don't think there is a different future. Maybe you think that is the future. But, I mean, so where does, that, where does that take us? I think the future's a mix. Yes, there will be new poultry houses and there will be CAFOs as we go along. And that goes back to my point a minute ago about the innovation and the science to solve the nutrient issues that are related to that. But I also believe, and today is the people here are evidence, um, and in my state, uh, we've gone from seven town community farmers markets to 27 in five years. We've gone from about $300,000 in total sales to $2.5 million in sales at those farm, farmers markets. Now, that's, a, that's good, that's income from those primarily young and small farmers. It's also getting farmers talking to non-farmers, and that has dynamics that are tremendous. Um, and also, it's part of the community. 
The hardest challenge I'm facing right now, programmatically, is the city of Wilmington. The city of Wilmington is a very distressed place, a lot of poverty, a lot of violence. We have, in the last few years, there's probably 28 or 30 community gardens, and some of them call themselves urban farms. My challenge is, what can I do distribution-wise to get all that good stuff from southern Delaware up in those incredibly stressed neighborhoods in Wilmington? And I say, Wilmington, that's our biggest city. You know, we, the same issue is in Dover or Laurel or some of our smaller towns as well. So, Mark, the, I do think there is an evolution happening here. Yes, traditional agriculture, I hope, remains strong and, and, and grows, but I think there'll be a much bigger mix as time goes on. And I've experienced that in my career. When I was young, there were more vegetables. That went away, and believe me, it's come back. So I think the future is a mix. What kind of mix do you see? Well, I, think, I hope I said a mix of traditional poultry, CAFOs, grain, but also a mix of more local, fresh uh, crops, vegetables. And I would like to see more, um, just think if we had five of those tomato canners still in business on Delmarva, how huge that would be to our local economy and to the farm community. I would agree. Um, I think Virginia in particular, and I know Buddy's had to deal with this too, with the um, drop in tobacco consumption in the world market. I mean, Virginia for years and years and years was known as the king of flu-cured tobacco around the world. That's changed. And some of that land where I'm from uh, is now producing, I mean, we've got, we've got grapes, grape vines growing on old tobacco, fifth, sixth generation tobacco farms as they transition away from tobacco. So I think you're going to see a continued evolution of different type of agricultural commodities. We're investing in Virginia, for instance, in, um, and this is kind of tied into economic opportunities, Sabra, the hummus maker, invests, has a huge operation in Chesterfield County just below the city of Richmond. Well, they're already buying Virginia vegetables to go into that hummus, but the key ingredient of hummus is chickpeas. Well, we're investing, working with Virginia Tech and Virginia State to figure out what type of chick, chickpea varietal will grow in Virginia because Sabra has said, if you grow it to our standards, we will buy it. So I think it's, it's going to be that mix of, of, uh, of traditional ag and these new opportunities coming along uh, throughout the state. Uh, I, I, we actually, and I, I, since we've talking so much about poultry already, uh, there are obviously some it's areas. It's hard not to on Delmar. It's hard not to. Uh, we, you know, it's big in the Shenandoah Valley where we are, but there are places in Virginia now that are actively recruiting poultry integrators to their regions. They've never had them before, but they're looking to, in, to diversify their agricultural economy. So, you know, it may lose in one area, but pick up someplace else. Because today, Mark, what we have is a, a, a diverse customer base. We have a customer base that wants to know where their food comes from, they want to know how it was grown, and they are willing to pay more for that, which is going to provide a, a tremendous opportunity. And we're going to see that demand continue to grow. But, and, but, but, but what, what I also want to say is, before we move off, is there's, there's going to be room for everybody. You know, there's not just one pathway forward. You know, the, the future pathway for agriculture in any of our states is a combination of all those different sectors. There, there's going to be room for large farms that produce lots of food on a large scale. And there's going to be room for a farm that grows two acres of vegetables, they retail all, and they're going to make a good living. So I see the future as all these different sectors moving forward maybe in different pathways, but they're all going to grow together. So, because, I, start here, and I'll go in between. When you talk about having the mix or diverse agriculture, what type of partnerships do your states need to make it happen, whether it's the federal government, private sector foundations? How do we build that kind of team so that we can put that together? I would yeah. start with um, a good financial component financial resources, whether it's a bank, farm credit, or I described our Young Farmer program a little while ago. Um, so that certainly private sector, plus the training that, the, um, that there's a real business plan and that people that are entering this business uh, know what they're doing. 
And that can come from the community colleges, the land grants, wherever, it, you know, business schools, wherever it comes from. Yes, the uh, feds, the USDA has programs. Um, um, I, I do think in our state we could be a little more aggressive in finding the resources to fund some of the technologies that I spoke of that could solve some of the problems. That's, that's not food-related directly, but I think that's part of the mix. And I'll stop and let the others chip in. Um. To your question, it's sort of an all of the above. I mean, if, if somebody approached me this afternoon from, from Virginia, any Virginians in the audience, and said that they wanted to invest, they had, an, they had this idea, and they wanted to turn that idea into a reality, I would put them with our agricultural development team at the Department of Agriculture. And from there to Ed's point, they would take, they would make sure, you know, you've got to have the finance, you've got to have the business plan, you've got to have, you know, a lot goes into taking that idea to reality. But... Everything is on the table from federal grant opportunities, state opportunities, localities working in partnership. One of the things that I'm probably most proud of of the last five years that we've done in Virginia is create an economic development incentive fund specific to agriculture and forestry in Virginia that helps, that works with the private sector, the locality, and then the state comes in as the third leg of the stool. It's the Governor's Agricultural and Forestry uh, Industries Development Fund, AFID for short, AFID. But that serves as a, as a state catalyst for those other uh, pieces, the, the private sector, the locality, the grant monies and everything coming together to make that economic idea come, become a reality. And, and the only thing that I think my two partners have missed is community involvement in local issues. As we move into these new alternative enterprises, what we've seen on local levels is zoning issues, health department issues. So community support to understand these changes that are evolving in agriculture and, and helping that industry to grow sometimes needs some local involvement to make those changes adaptable so they can move forward. You know, everybody doesn't like to see a big poultry farm, but maybe that's the best way the industry is going to move forward. Uh, every, everybody doesn't like to see, uh, you know, these little food kitchens scattered all over the community, but maybe that's the best way we're going to move forward. So it's going to take community involvement to support these new enterprises, get a better understanding of how they operate and what they need and support them to move forward. This is a question that uh, probably is of common interest among all three states, and that would be the linkage between best management practices and the health of Chesapeake Bay. Uh, with a 30-year a history of more than 80 organizations participating in addressing, mitigating the adverse impacts of agriculture on the Bay, uh, it might be fair to say if fish could vote, they would vote for more improvement today than has been seen. And yet the dialogue remains distressed, sometimes adversarial, but certainly limited. And my question is, what can each of the secretaries suggest to improve the dialogue between organizations of environmental concern and big and small ag? Mark, I'll go. We, we, we just had this conversation. Um, we are very fortunate in Virginia right now to have our largest environmental organizations working in pretty close partnership with our largest agricultural operations, Farm Bureau, Agribusiness Council, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, James River Association, others, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, um, best management practices, GAP, good agricultural practices. And there was, in fact, we were discussing this before the event started, where we did an event in the Shenandoah Valley at a poultry farm, excuse me, a dairy, uh, dairy cattle operation where we had Will Davis, Chesapeake Bay Foundation president, and the president of the Farm Bureau and the president of Agribusiness Council standing arm-in-arm arm with the governor talking about the progresses that Virginia had made through some legislative initiatives, mostly voluntarily, but they negotiated, they came together. And this wasn't an overnight success, obviously. It's been years of work together. But I think Virginia, and this is nothing to take away from Delaware or Maryland right now, but I think we because of those partnerships, because of that constant dialogue that's been going on, we're in a pretty good place right now, and hopefully the continued improvements we're going to see in water quality, not only in the Chesapeake Bay Basin, but throughout Virginia, will continue that harmony. I know it could be fragile. I'm not standing here, sitting here today with not being naive, but I think right now that work, particularly over the last seven to eight years, 
has really yielded some nice successes. And, and we've all been making progress. You know, the, the bay didn't get in the shape it's in in 10 years. You know, the, the bay has gotten bad over a period of decades. It's not going to get fixed in a period of one decade. It's going to take years. And as I mentioned earlier, we're dealing with non-point sources. You know, they're weather-dictated influences that impact the bay. You know, if you look at the amount of best management practices that have been instituted by agriculture in all of our states in the last 10 years, <coughs> tremendous success and progress has been made. Uh, it's going to take a little time, but we all believe we're on the right path to, make, to meet those goals. In fact, we've all met those goals so far, and we're going to see progress. It just takes time. This hour on Soundbites, I'm talking to the agricultural and environmental decision makers in the Delmarva region. There's more of this important conversation that we recorded at the 15th Eastern Shore Planning Conference last week, right after this break. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites on the Mark Steiner Show, broadcast out of the EAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community in Baltimore, and on WSDL 90.7 FM, Marvel Public Radio. Last week, I talked to the Secretaries of Agriculture from Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia about Delmarva agriculture and environmental policy and the future of the region at the 15th Eastern Shore Planning Conference, and here's the rest of that conversation. Earlier, we, I mentioned that been talking to people in Somerset County and parts of uh, Virginia and nearby Delaware, that there are a lot of people concerned about the new uh, poultry operations that could be opening up. It's going to be huge, bigger than we've seen in other places, in Somerset County, especially here in Maryland. The question is, given what phosphorus does and has done to the bay, the bay is not in very good shape, and let's be real. So can the land, can the water afford more large operations like that as the basis of the future of agriculture and keep the bay and our water alive. Is that possible? I mean, we can't figure out what to do with the manure now, where, where, where to put it, how to yeah. do with it. And, and, and farmers get upset because they want to measure the, the stuff on the land because they feel it's an intrusion, but if you don't measure the land, you don't know where it's coming from, can't figure out how to stop it. And there's been no real science on buffer zones and what they've really done. So can we really afford with all that to do more. Well, in a lot of cases, the growth that we see now in new poultry houses is replacement of older houses. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden the industry is expanding by 10 or 20 percent because we're building these houses. So you have to understand that a lot of that was a replacement just to stay constant. The other issue is that, you know, our farmers followed science for many, many decades. It wasn't that long ago when the standard university rate for the application of poultry litter was 8 to 10 tons. It hadn't been that long ago. And in the last six years, we've gone from five tons down to two tons. And in the near future, we may go down to less than that. So our farmers have followed the science that was best at that time. So it's hard to say that you know, we, we couldn't support that. And what we don't have in at least Maryland is we don't have a poultry litter problem. What we have is a distribution problem. And over those decades, farmers following the science that they were given overapplied, today we know, overapplied manure based on that science. We don't have a problem with too much manure in the state of Maryland or Virginia? Or, no, we, or you don't think we have a problem with that? No, we don't. Not in Maryland. We have a distribution problem. We, um, poultry litter is obviously an issue. Uh, application of poultry litter, proper application. Uh, we in Virginia have worked, we have a, a program that helps move poultry litter outside of those certain areas, particularly we're talking about the Chesapeake Bay Basin. We work to move poultry litter utilized outside of that zone where it is needed. Uh, and then it can be applied per what the, you know, the extension agents and others, the applied science uh, has to say. So um, it's, I, think, I think Buddy's right. It's hard to say that there is a poultry litter 
problem. Uh, it's, it's obviously there, it exists. It's, it's about uh, making sure that you're not overdoing it or doing it too much in the area where it's causing problems. And that's, again, what we've looked at doing is incentivizing, moving that matter elsewhere. But we've also, Ned and I talked about this earlier, um, also looked at alternative uses for poultry litter, and that goes back to the new opportunities that may be involved in agriculture in the future where you may not be applying poultry litter at all, perhaps. Maybe there's something else that takes place because that litter is being used for something else. So to respond to your point and to the gentleman's question, uh, Paul Spees earlier today, I don't know if he's still here, but he showed that one slide of groundwater and groundwater improving. And we need to understand that. So, yeah. You can call it a distribution problem. You can call it a production problem. You know, Delaware spends about, I don't know, uh, two or well, almost $400,000 a year in relocating poultry manure at 19 cents per ton mile from the concentrated areas to other areas or other uses. To your question about the dialogue, there is no question, even EPA, I revealed something there. I said even EPA. <laughs> EPA says that in the last 12 years, the nutrient loading from agriculture for N and phosphorus has decreased by 40%. Frankly, that was the easy fruit. Now it's getting harder and harder. Your question to dialogue goes back to a statement that was said today in either the first or second speakers, and that is trust. I spend a lot of time with the EPA Chesapeake Bay program, and consequently I interact with environmental people environmental groups. Many of them are great and they stick to the science. Some of them, like the Jack Nicholson movie, can't handle the truth. And I, I have, the University of Delaware has great data on a couple of specific things that, are, that shows the true nutrient value of manure, which is different than it was 20 years ago because of phytase and other things. Some people don't accept that. So to answer your question about dialogue, and it's hard. And, and some people are objective and some people are zealots. And a lawyer once told me, you can't argue with a zealot. I don't know if you, I can't anyway. But this open dialogue that tries to solve problems instead of just saying no, that's where I think we need to do more of. And that gets to your dialogue question, I think. Todd, go ahead and we'll go back, well, I was just back then over here. To that point. And, and echoing what I said earlier about the ag community and the, and the um, environmental coming to get community, I'm not going to name names and point fingers, but I had a senior official with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation tell me several years ago that he or she <laughs> would rather have all existing farms in Virginia continue going forward versus any new parking lots, housing development, shopping malls, on and on and on. But the dialogue, so stand by what, what was said there but have to work together to be sure that those farming operations were doing all the right things to be good environmental stewards. To me, that was, an, and I, I, I use that example over and over and over because it was so very telling as far as having that dialogue. If that person believes that and was speaking on behalf of, of that entity, we know we have to come together and find that common ground because of the way that entity feels and the way our farming community feels. So I've used that a lot in discussions that we've had between agriculture and uh, environmental groups. With respect to regulations, every time something goes amok, a politician wants to implement regulations. And the problem is, is there are unintended consequences of these regulations. A good example is if regulations put the poultry industry out of business on, on the shore, uh, this area is uh, so attractive. One type of agricultural system will be replaced by something that's non-agriculture. We would see, if the poultry industry were to leave this area, we would see enormous population growth. Uh, we would lose the open space that we have, and nobody wants that to happen. The, uh, when EPA first started, they used something called the Delaney Clause to regulate pesticides. If they found any amount of a carcinogenic activity in, in a pesticide, it was banned. It created absolute havoc. Congress mandated that, that EPA had to do cost-benefit studies after that. 
and regulation of chemical pesticides became a lot more uh, sensical. And uh, I'd just like to have an uh, opinion of these guys. Uh, is there any chance we could have good scientific economic analysis of cost-benefit to regulations impacting agriculture? I mean, that, that's, that, I don't mean not to be short, yeah, yeah. but that's what we're, all three of us are all about, and our colleagues and other, other departments within our state and our federal partners. So I would say yes. And he said economics, and that's part of it, part of the evaluation as well. And, and we've always tried to balance those <clears throat> regulatory impacts with financial and technical resources. You know, in the, right. <clears throat> excuse me, in the last seven years in Maryland, we spent $157 million in cost share programs for farmers. So we have asked our farmers to do more, but I think we've also stepped up to the plate and provided them with the resources to meet those challenges. And, and I to absolutely ditto, echo, whatever you want to say. Uh, I know in Virginia, our legislature, be it uh, Democratic chairs of Agriculture Committee, Conservation Committee, or Republican, they expect Agriculture, Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry to be joined at the hip with the Secretary of Natural Resources working in partnership on finding that appropriate middle ground as far as the regulatory process is concerned. So you've got the Agriculture Department, Forestry Department, and my Secretariat working with Department of Environmental Quality, Department of Conservation and Recreation and Natural Resources, and we may butt heads and argue, but ultimately I think we find the sensible way forward, putting everything uh, on the table that's, that should be analyzed and analyzing it thoroughly. So. Again, I don't want to hold Virginia up as being perfect. We're not, but I think we're doing a pretty good job right now of finding that middle ground where both sides are comfortable. Yeah, it, it was, well, first, thank you for being here. We, we really do appreciate it. It was striking to me that you each acknowledged in different ways that the structure of agriculture in your states and in the region is going to change and, and may indeed change in, in very significant ways. I think you also each acknowledged in different ways that profitability isn't the only public stake in agriculture. That, you know, notwithstanding the fact that the profitability of the industry was the sort of central criteria that, that you were offered when you were, were hired, I think you all have all acknowledged in different ways that, you know, feeding folks and environmental impacts are agricultural outcomes that, that your citizens have a stake in. So I'm, I'm curious about the extent to which you are thinking about ways that you might manage the evolution of the structure of the sector in your states to optimize all of those outcomes. Because what, what you spoke about is, is attempting to kind of ride that evolution to manage outcomes of profitability. But one could certainly imagine a, an agricultural sector, sector that is structured such as to optimize environmental outcomes, economic outcomes, and social outcomes. And I'm curious about the extent to which, A, you, you would see that to be part of your responsibility to manage the evolution of the structure in that way, and B, the extent to which you feel as if you have the tools to do so. I, I would, uh, it's a great question, and uh, it's a great observation, and and profitability allows an industry to address the issues that you, you know, feeding people, environmental practices. In Delaware, we are getting ready to embark on what is a first for our state, a farm and food policy. And that's going to be a big tent with a lot of discussion, with a lot of different perspectives. And what's unique, we have had people over the years talk about food policies, you know, you know, food for people that, you know, are at the low end of the economic spectrum or whatever. And we've had farm policies, you know, let's have a profitable farm system. We're going to start a discussion with all the players about a farm and food policy. I love the way you phrased it, can we manage the evolution? I don't know that we can manage the evolution, but we can create a good, healthy uh, dialogue about that evolution, and as Darwin pointed out, evolution kind of manages itself, but at least ha have a roadmap in the form of policy guidelines 
that let people think about this as we go down this road over the next 5, 10, and 15 years. So that's one initiative that we're starting that relates to your question. Any other secretaries want to jump in? I think I touched on it a little bit earlier with the, 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 the implementation of a strategic economic development plan for agriculture and forestry four years ago and Governor McAuliffe. I mean, one of the reasons I'm sitting here today is because he asked me to stay on after he was elected last year because he said, you guys did great, great work over the four years of the McDonald administration, but I think you're just getting started. So ours is, again, that domestic working in partnership with the farming community, uh, the, 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 the agribusiness, large, larger agribusiness, so running the gamut from big to small. Uh, obviously, the environmental community uh, at, play a role in that because of uh, the, the, the integration that, that goes on there between farm and, and being good stewards of the land. But trying to manage the evolution, I, I, I'm not as bold enough to say that. I think we're trying to make sure that as agriculture continues to evolve, Virginia is always a step or two ahead, and that is based on the domestic development opportunities we're trying to facilitate in our agricultural community, our farms, and those opportunities in the global marketplace. And when I say global, I mean a farmer's market in downtown Richmond all the way to a port in China. We're trying to make sure that we continue to help feed clothe, shelter, fuel, on and on and on, the world, at home, all the way elsewhere where those opportunities flow back into farming, farming to keep it profitable. Because going back to what I said at the beginning about my grandfather, and Ed had to hit on it too, best way to keep a farm going is to make sure that farmer's profitable. Have another avenue for him to move that product into the marketplace. So that's... I'm not bold enough to say I'm controlling evolution or managing it, but I think we're trying to stay a step or two ahead of, of where we believe things are going. And if you ask any farmer about change, he'll tell you he hates change. But if, if he didn't change, he'd be out of business very quickly. If you look at agriculture, it has evolved greatly, and it always will continue to evolve. And if I'm supposed to manage that evolution, I have failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll leave today because I can't manage that evolution. Our, I think that our role is to provide information, provide guidance, and help assist both sides as they move forward together to make sure that one doesn't overcome the other. It's going to take a balance. As, you know, as we've stated, the only way to keep our farms and businesses, keep them profitable, and understanding that they, giving them the information that they make good decisions moving forward to protect their profitability, also protect the environment at the same time. Um, I would like to know how you are improving the situation around non-point -so non source pollution where, um, specifically, how are you making people aware of non-point source pollution and basically eliminating the blame game between farmers and, <clears throat> and those people who are controlling, like, wastewater treatment plants, for example? Set your hands, why don't you go first? Well, well it's... That's a, that's a tough question. That's a good question. That's a tough question. That's a hard issue to, to manage. You know, what we try to do is put out information about the good work that our farmers are doing. On the other hand, we try to educate our farmers about uh, what their goals are and ways that they can improve their operations. It's really tough uh, working with two such diverse groups in some instances uh, to get that message out that they're doing a good job and to also communicate a message that we need to make sure we're doing the best that we possibly can. You can really get some diverse opinions in a group of people when you start talking about that. But, you know, if you look at here in Maryland in the last seven years, we've done a pretty amazing job. You know, we've, we've got a cover crop program where almost half of the state's cropland is covered in green over the winter. You know, in a very, six or eight years ago, that wasn't happening. You know, our farmers have stepped up, planted cover crops. We've installed best management practices at a higher rate than we've ever done in the history of this state. You know, as I said before, if you give farmers technical and financial assistance, they'll step up to the plate and they'll do what needs to be done. It's a matter of getting that message out to the public and that same contradictory message back to our farmers that just need to keep that going. Um, I mentioned earlier that back in the end of August, we brought together the governor and Chesapeake Bay Foundation and Farm Bureau and Agribusiness Council and others to celebrate. One, the thing we were celebrating was uh, full implementation of a resource management program in Virginia that's aimed at making sure that our farmers are doing everything they can to be the best stewards of the land. And that was part of that mention of the dialogue that came together over a period of time to reach consensus. 
um, that resource man those resource management plans are provide um, some certainty to our growers. They're, they're non-cookie cutter. They represent the unique characteristics that every single farm has. And there's no two farms alike. They may be separated by you know, a fence post or something else, but they, they have unique characteristics. So that's one example of, and then highlighting that, highlighting that work, bringing together the environmental and agricultural community. But conversely, uh, when you have a bad actor, Make sure that bad actor is called out. And we have an agricultural stewardship program in Virginia that works to bring farmers into compliance. And overwhelmingly, the ones that aren't in compliance, that aren't doing things right to, to, to best manage their land, are not doing it because they're bad actors. They're doing it because something else has happened that needs to be corrected, and we work to bring them in. But when you do have that bad actor, crack down on them and make an example of this. We're not going to tolerate this from a locality all the way through to the, to, to the capital and, and the programs that are in place. I'd like to give a quick concrete example to your question. In Delaware, we have this uh, great geographic feature called the Inland Bays. It's Rehoboth Bay, the Indian River Bay, Little Assa Woman Bay, you know, Rehoboth, Bethany Beach area, Inland Bays. If you go back about 20 years ago, there was tremendous nutrient loading from different sources, poultry industry, manure. There were 22,000 septic tanks in that watershed. Annually, a perfectly functioning septic tank for a family of four is still putting 30 pounds of nitrogen right into the system. And there was a wastewater treatment plant that was uh, pretty primitive for Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. What happened for a couple summers in a row, the, it wasn't algae, just seaweed of different species, growing like gangbusters, washing up along the beaches, starting to rot and smelled like sulfur, rotten eggs. Once we got through that crisis, and a lot of finger pointing, it's agriculture, it's the septic systems, it's the treatment plant, the fact is it was everything. We haven't had that situation, the, the water treatment tra plant upgraded significantly. The farmers are implementing an amazing array of best management practices. And the big ticket cost item is uh, developing sewer systems and wastewater treatment plants in what was a rural community. We have knocked out about 7,000 less septic systems with plans for more over time. So that went from finger pointing to understanding the problem to putting the resources in to address it step by step. Can we get one more very quick thought here, but we really do have to end here. Before I ask my question, I just want to say to everybody here, it really makes me feel good to know that there's a tremendous amount of support and concern for where we're headed here on Delmarva. And I think everybody should be congratulated for showing up today. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, we all know that peninsula isn't a peninsula, it's an island, and it's shrinking. It's shrinking by global warming, and shrinking because of development. And as such, it's creating issues for the poultry and the ag industry. We all know that. We, we're all wondering where the future of farming is headed. What you said, Secretary Hans, it's possible the poultry industry may leave. Are the farmers on Delmarva going to be prepared and basically overnight be ready to switch gears to go into other venues? Because as you said, the only way to keep farmers working their farm is to be profitable. At the end of the day, it's a business model. It's a model that's been instilled in these guys for generations. And we could run the risk of losing many of them because the kids aren't going to stay. Many of them are, but many of them aren't. And at the end of the day, this is really a region, an agricultural region that needs to work consecutively between the three states. We all know that. And the main goal for keeping the bay alive is to keeping these farms working so we don't lose it to development and deal with another issue, which is stormwater runoff from development, which we can't control. We never will be able to. So with that in mind, going back to this big issue now that Governor Malley is creating is this PMT tool. I've talked to several hundred farmers this summer, and a lot of them are concerned about what this tool is going to do. I'd rather be talking about growing corn and watermelons and chickens for a hell of a crab feast. But at the end of the day, we all know that this is an issue that's going to cause a lot of hardship for a lot of guys. 
that manure has a dollar sign in it, and on one side there's a plus because they see the value in it, and on the other side, because they've got too much of it, it's going to be a negative that's going to impact their business model and profit. So I'd like for you to explain that a little bit further. Well, there were several questions in there, and, and when I said the poultry industry may leave, that was purely hypothetical, and I believe whenever, if and whenever that did happen, it wouldn't happen overnight. It would be an evolution, for sure. I grew up in Southern Maryland. I'm a fourth-generation tobacco farmer. The tobacco industry left Southern Maryland in five years. I know what it's like to lose an industry. We lost it in five years. That is like overnight, so I've been through that before. You know, but uh, we clearly recognize farmers' concerns about impacts from regulations. We try to work through, provide programs to mitigate those impacts as best we can. Uh, but nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody really knows what the impacts are going to be. But we clearly recognize the concern. You know, but we have, last year we started funding alternative energy projects for manure. Uh, we spent $2 million. We funded one project in Somerset County where uh, they believe they have technology to remove the phosphorus out of poultry litter. If we can remove the phosphorus out of poultry litter, we don't have a poultry litter problem anymore. We don't have a distribution problem anymore. That technology could be up and running in 18 months. I was on a dairy farm yesterday. A dairy farmer has instituted technology. He was removing 90% of the phosphorus out of his dairy manure. We don't have a phosphorus issue where that technology gets widely adopted. So today, the issues and problems that we see today can be quickly remedied with technology. And nobody knows how quick or how soon that's going to happen. But we have the good fortune to be able to see that from the ground up. And I'm very optimistic that technology is going to solve this problem and we will work through these issues. And uh, as I said earlier, I think agriculture has a tremendous future here in Maryland and I'm not that concerned about the future because I think it's brilliant. Those are the voices of Maryland Secretary of Agriculture, Buddy Hans, Delaware Secretary of Agriculture, Ed Key, and Virginia Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry, Todd Amore. During a panel discussion, I moderated in Eastern the 15th Eastern Shore Planning Conference. Tweet me at Mark Steiner or email me at talksteinershow.org your thoughts about today's show. And thanks so much for listening. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Del Marva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcast on iTunes. For Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.